Welcome today. This is uh, reading through the uh, New Testament as we are here uh, walking through the New Testament scriptures uh, together through one year here at MNBC. This is Pastor Spencer Snow. I am the discipleship pastor here at the church. I hope you're doing well today, everyone. And thank you so much for being with us um, uh, with this podcast and listening and and for reading through the scriptures. I think it's going to be very beneficial to all of us as we uh, seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the way the Holy Spirit does that, one of the ordinary ways that he promises to do that is as we faithfully read the Bible, as we come and hear it read at church, but also as we read it at home. Um, You know, in our private time, we trust that he will use his word to change us internally and to bear fruit in our lives. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This week we're going, we are, uh, this is episode five, but this is week four for the week of January 23rd. And we are going to be walking through Matthew chapter 16 through chapter 20. So Matthew chapter 16 through 20, entering the second kind of the half of, uh, of, uh, we've already crossed over the half point um, for uh, Matthew's gospel but this is really starting to lead up now where everything is starting to uh, gonna gonna begin to get more intense and climactic within the gospel of Matthew. Uh, as we as we kind of begin here in chapter 16, of course, this is a really big chapter because this is the chapter where uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's a major point in all of the gospel uh, narratives, I should say, perhaps Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, John does a different, um, kind of structures his gospel uniquely compared to those other three, but especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is a key moment in the the gospel story, um, as everything's been leading up to uh, Jesus doing miracles, Jesus, uh, his ministry so far, and here we have Jesus uh, coming to his disciples and Peter uh, acknowledging, confessing the truth about who Jesus Christ is as you are the son of, son of the living God, the Christ. And then, of course, uh, Jesus uh, continues to teach his disciples right after this about his upcoming crucifixion, his suffering, and he includes his resurrection, you'll notice as well, uh, in his instruction to the disciples. But Peter, of course, after having given a really good answer, comes and gives a really bad rebuke to his Lord and says, Lord, this ain't going to happen to you. And, and Jesus takes him aside and, and, um, and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And he then calls all of his disciples to follow him. We follow a crucified Savior, and he says, now you need to take up your cross and follow me likewise. This eventually will lead into a very powerful moment for the disciples, at least for, especially for three of them, James, John, and Peter, as they are led up to see Jesus transfigured before them in chapter 17, before eventually Jesus comes back down from the mountain. He has to, uh, his disciples are unable to uh, cast out a demon from a uh, child, from a boy, 
and uh, Jesus has to come and and uh, and save them from from further embarrassment and, and cast out the demon. And then eventually we see Jesus with the miracle of the coin in the fish's mouth, uh, whereby he pays the tax for he and uh, Peter with um, providing a coin through the through a, the through a fish that Peter uh, catches. Matthew chapter 18 is a chapter of instruction. Remember, there's multiple blocks in Matthew's gospel of instruction. The first major block is Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. That is the Sermon on the Mount. Then we have again Matthew chapter, I believe it's uh, 13, with a bunch of parables there where Jesus is instructing his disciples about the nature of the kingdom. There we have the parable of the sower, the parable of the, you know, the kingdom of God is like a, a net that a man throws out and captures all kinds of fish, right? Those kinds of parables. Another section of teaching that Jesus gives is, oh, I think also Matthew chapter 10, I forgot that one, where he's instructing his disciples as they're going to preach the gospel to Israel, not to the Gentiles yet, but to Israel. Matthew chapter 18 is another section of instruction where Jesus is instructing his his disciples um, in, in some parables, but also in uh, talking to them about the, the nature of the kingdom, uh, how to reclaim a brother who's gone astray. And such like that. Before eventually, now in 19 and 20, we have Jesus's Judean ministry here, right before chapter 21, which will be for next week, where we see Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So all of these chapters this week are kind of leading right up to that moment, that that very significant moment, right before Jesus, um, kind of kicks off a whole series of events that he knows what he's kicking off, right? He knows that by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, the people know the symbolism of this. They know um, there's excitement in the air, and it's only going to take Jesus riding in and doing just the right things to spark uh, a uh, a whole series of events. And Jesus knows this, and yet, it's going to bring about that that last ride into Jerusalem, or that I shouldn't say that last ride, but that 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 amazing ride into Jerusalem, where he knows he is going to lay down his life for the sins of the world. So it's a powerful sequence of events. Chapter nineteen has some some very uh, wonderful teaching uh, times where Jesus teaches about the nature of uh, marriage and divorce. He also welcomes the little children, says um, they are part of his kingdom just as much as the adults are. He uh, has the parable of the labors and the vineyard, and and then we also see him once again consistently reminding them, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to get crucified, but I'm going to raise again on the third day. He does this multiple times, you'll notice, by the way, and reminds them and tells them, and it and it's amazing because they don't get it. They don't get it at all that everything he says happens, and they don't. it really doesn't click for them until after Jesus is raised and calms down their fears. And then the last miracle, right before the triumphal entry, is Jesus healing these blind men. Uh, have mercy upon us, son of David. And he does, and he heals them. So, what can we learn as you're reading through these chapters, these powerful chapters? It's coming to, you know, things are, are increasing in intensity, so to speak. Uh, Jesus is confessed to be the, the Christ, the son of the living God. And what can we learn uh, from these chapters? Well, again, I want to, as usual, bring some stuff from J.C. Ryle, but also from uh, Charles Spurgeon, just some things to help us prompt some thoughts. And I think it's helpful, too, because 
as you uh, listen to these things, as I read these things to you, and as we kind of uh, think about them together, I think it's, it's, it's so helpful for us to chew on the word this way, to let it sink in, but to apply it to our lives. And, um, and hopefully also, maybe it'll prompt you to maybe, um, you know, if you're interested, you could check out J.C. Ryle online, or you can buy one of his. He's got those expository thoughts on the Gospels. They're so good, so good. I can't talk about them enough because I think they're really good for people maybe who are intimidated by the Bible or who are intimidated by commentaries or by... Um, by how do I read this thing and, and apply it to my life? I really think J.C. Ryle would be something you might want to check out and look at. At least look at him online because um, he's so easy to read, so plain, and has some great practical instruction for us. So it, check it out. J.C. Ryle, Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. He has them on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I think he, I think his John one is, is, is even bigger, which, of course, if you're like me, John is one of my is probably my favorite book in the whole Bible. Um, I always say my 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 trio of if I had to have only three books from the Bible, and I know that we want them all, but if I only had to have three, my three personally would be Genesis, uh, Romans, and John. Uh, those would be my three. Um, not because they're any more inspired, but there's just um those are three very special books to me personally, um, and so um, I'm sure we all have those. I have those as well. Um, anyway, so as we now look here at these chapters with J.C. Ryle, the first thing I want to point out to you is, as we talked about here before, Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 begins asking two basic questions of his disciples. And he asked them, the first question is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's the first basic question is, what, what are the various ideas out there about who I am? And if you're at home, you know there's a lot of different um, ideas that people have about who Jesus is. He may be their homeboy, they think. (laughs) Um, They may think that Jesus was a good teacher or uh, Jesus was a a good man that we should all try to emulate. Um, Jesus is this or that, um, right? There can be, and whenever I said Jesus is my homeboy, because I think sometimes people uh, treat Jesus very irreverently, right? Yeah, he, I'm okay with him, but they're not really understanding who Jesus is. And so uh, I, hope, uh, I hope you understand what I mean by that. Um, uh, and then again, we have to ask ourselves, well, who is he? And of course, there were other people that thought, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is this. Jesus is that. And then Jesus throws a second question to them, and it's one that we all have to answer. After they have considered all the possibilities of who do people say that the Son of Man is, he then turns the question and makes it personal, and it's a question each of us have to answer. But who do you say that I am? And we each have to answer that question. Who is Jesus? There is no more important question in all of life, in all of eternity. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And Peter answers this question. And it's in a sense saying, I've thought of, I know that all these other hypotheses are out there, all these other possibilities that maybe you could be John the Baptist, maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're Jeremiah. And Peter says, but I know who you are. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, of course, says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He says, because you just didn't come up with this out of your own mind. Uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father 
who is in heaven. My Father has revealed this to you. This is, this is heavenly knowledge that you have received, uh, supernatural information. And, and J.C. Ryle here has this about uh, Peter's noble confession. He writes this, uh, The glory of Peter's confession lies in this, that he made it when few were with Christ and many against him. He made it when the rulers of his own nation, the scribes and priests and Pharisees, were all opposed to his master. He made it when our Lord was in the form of a servant, without wealth, without royal dignity, without any visible marks of a king. To make such a a confession at such a time required great faith and great decision of character. The confession itself, as Brentius says, was an epitome of all Christianity and a compendium of true doctrine about religion. Therefore, it was that our Lord said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. We shall do well to copy that hearty zeal and affection with Peter, which Peter here displayed. We are perhaps too much disposed to underrate this holy man because of his occasional instability and his thrice-repeated denial of his Lord. This is a great mistake. With all his faults, Peter was a true-hearted, fervent, single-minded servant of Christ. With all his imperfections, he has given us a pattern that many Christians would do wisely to follow. Zeal like his may have its ebbs and flows, and sometimes lack steadiness of purpose. Zeal like his may be ill-directed and sometimes make sad mistakes. But zeal like his is not to be despised. It awakens the sleeping. It stirs the sluggish. It provokes others to exertion. Anything is better than sluggishness, lukewarmness, and torpor in the church of Christ. Happy would it have been for Christendom had there been more Christians like Peter and Martin Luther and fewer like Erasmus. Erasmus there, uh, Ryle is talking about, Erasmus was a very learned guy, a very smart man, um, an academic uh, man uh, around the time of the Reformation. And um, he actually helped Martin Luther in the sense in which he came out with a Greek New Testament, which you know at the time of the Reformation, there were not translations into the uh, you know, into German or English or whatever from the original uh, Hebrew and Greek in which the uh, Old Testament scriptures were written and the New Testament scriptures were written. Well, he comes out with the Greek New Testament, but he he didn't have the same temperament that Luther did. And Luther had this almost, he was similar to Peter in which uh, he could make great mistakes, but he could also, his same passion and fire and zeal could do great things for God. And certainly, I think that's a very helpful thing that when we remember right now, all around us, we live in a time when the true confession, the true understanding and belief about who Jesus of Nazareth is, is very unpopular uh, culturally. Um, It's always been unpopular throughout all of time, but especially now at our cultural moment and in our time and place, um, we live in a society which does not regard understanding Jesus and this truth claim that Jesus is the Son of God, very God and very man. This claim is not popular with the world. It's okay if you think that Jesus is a good man or a good teacher, or you pick and choose what parts of Jesus that you wish to follow. But to claim that he is the Son of God and the Son of Man, and that you're claiming that he is judging the whole world and that he is the only way of salvation for all men, well, that's, 
that's very unpopular today, and it's been very unpopular for all of time, right? But um, we should we would do well to remember that Peter made this confession at a time when Jesus was. Um, he wasn't walking around with a radiance about him. He wasn't walking around with gold robes. or um, he, he came across as this ordinary man from Galilee. And can any good thing come from Nazareth? And, and yet Peter makes and sees with the eyes of faith, you are the Son of God. And so likewise, I think it would do us well to remember uh, to copy, as, as Ryle says, copy that hearty zeal and affection which Peter here displayed. We would do well to be passionate in our Christianity. Uh, Christianity is the most exciting thing in the world. Is there any more? Is there anything more exciting than knowing Christ, than knowing who He is, than than understanding His perfections, His divinity, His humanity, what He came to do, why He came here, what He is doing, and what it all means for you and me and for the whole world and the universe? Uh, there is no more exciting thing than the gospel, than the Bible, than the things of God, than who our God is. Um, these, this is such a wonderful thing we get to, to, we have the privilege of being God's people. And likewise, we would, we would do well to copy that zeal which Peter had, and which I think would do us well in our church and, and for all of us today, especially in an age um, which seems cold, maybe especially more so than past generations even. Uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing I want to bring up to you. The second thing is from the transfiguration story. As you read it, uh, the next day you'll be reading from Matthew chapter 17, where here Jesus uh, is transfigured in all of his glory and splendor. It's almost as if the hidden glory and divinity of Christ that, that Jesus has, in a sense, held back from being manifested in all of its brilliance and radiance. All of a sudden, Jesus just, in a sense, reveals it, um, almost pulls back the glory, pulls back the cover, and his splendor is radiated. And we see Moses and Elijah are there. He's talking to them. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Peter and James and John. They see all of this. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then we read at the very end in verse 8, And when they, had lifted, up, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher from the 1800s, has a whole sermon on verse 8, specifically on this phrase, they saw no one but Jesus only. And I want to give you a quick outline partially of of this sermon, but then I want to read a a substantial quote from it because it is just so good. And um, I'm not going to try to make up anything better um, because that would be kind of foolish, I think. So he he gives three basic points here, and he points out what might have happened after the transfiguration, what really happened, and then what we desire may happen to all of us now. And he's talking to those people now present at his time, and I think we can apply it to us today. And he points out that that instead of after the transfiguration, right, they could have, first of all, seen no one. They could have looked up, and all of this happened, and there would have been no one there. That would not have been comforting. They might have seen Moses only. Well, Moses, of course, with his law, would have probably not comforted them. 
but uh, it would have been, uh, Moses was a holy man and a Christian, I believe, substantially a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ to come. Uh, but that would not have been comforting. Elijah is somewhat abrasive, right, in his preaching, uh, in his prophetic ministry. Again, a believer in Jesus Christ to come in the Old Testament, but um, not necessarily the most comforting of, of people. They might have seen him, and they also might have seen Moses and Elijah with Jesus, right? Again, they might have seen all three, but none of those things happen, Spurgeon points out. Instead, what does it say? And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They saw no man, no one, no person, but Jesus only. He points out that he is their comfort, Jesus is. Jesus is their Savior. He's their only Savior. Jesus is their master, their only master that they follow. They don't follow Moses. They don't follow Elijah. They follow Jesus only. Jesus is their power for future life. He enables them. Jesus only. Um, Jesus is their reward. He only is their reward. Um, Yeah, so so Jesus is everything. Now, thirdly, he has this section. So they saw Jesus only, Jesus alone. And he says this, what we desire now that may happen to all of us now present. First of all, he says to Christians, he says, I do desire, this is Spurgeon talking now, I do desire for my fellow Christians and for myself that more and more the great object of our thoughts, motives, and acts may be Jesus only. I believe that whenever our religion is most vital, it is most full of Christ. And do you think about that often? I think that's a wonderful reminder to us as Christians That in all of our thoughts, in all of the things that motivate us for our lives, for our worship in church, for our life outside of church, for our home life, for our raising of our children, for living with our neighbors, for the workplace, for whatever we do, may everything be centered and grounded and rooted and growing out of and sourced from Jesus only. I agree with Spurgeon. I believe that whenever our religion is most vital, it is most full of Christ. Sometimes we can get so lost in all of the complexities of religion, and there, and we think about um, all of the, uh, you know, we, we wonder about life's questions, or maybe we're studying the deep things of God. But it's so important for all of us, and if you're like me, sometimes we want to learn those things. But really, Christianity is actually a very simple thing as well. It's so deep that we can never plumb the depths, but it's also so simple that the smallest child can lay claim to it. It's all about Jesus only. Jesus only. No one else. We focus on him because when we see him, we see the Father. And when we see Jesus We know the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes, and he's with us, because without him, we can't see Jesus. So we look to him by faith. We live our Christian lives upon Jesus only. But then he preaches the gospel to unbelievers. But I think also, if you're like me, um, and and I'll say myself, I love hearing the, the good news, not simply about how Jesus helps me live my life now, but I need to hear that reminder of my salvation again. Just like the moment we first believed, whenever that was, or if you're like me, I don't remember the first moment I believed. I've always heard this story. Um, It just becomes more precious the older we get. He says this, 
Um, this is this is just pure gold right here. There are others here, Spurgeon says, who are not yet believers in Jesus, and our desires that they may that this may happen to them, that they may see Jesus only. Oh, saith one, sir, I want to see my sins. My heart is very hard and very proud. I want to see my sins. Spurgeon addresses this person and says, friend, I also desire that you should, but but I desire that you may see them not on yourself, but on Jesus only. No sight of sin ever brings such true humiliation of spirit as when the soul sees its sins laid on the Savior. Sinner, I know you have thought of sins as lying on yourself, and you have been trying to feel their weight, but there is a happier and better view still. Sin was laid on Jesus, and it it made him to be covered with a bloody sweat. It nailed him to the cross. It made him cry, Lama Sabathiani. It bowed him into the dust of death. Why, friend, if you see sin on Jesus, you will hate it. You will bemoan it. You will abhor it. You need not look evermore to sin as burdening yourself. See Jesus only, and the best kind of repentance will follow. Ah, Spurgeon again now giving another person. Ah, but saith another, I want to feel my need of Christ more. You will see your need all the better if you look at Jesus only. Many a time an appetite for a thing is created by the sight of it. Why, there are some of us who can hardly be trusted in a bookseller's shop, Spurgeon writes, and and I can agree with that. I don't know about you, but I love books. He says this, Because though we might have done very well at home without a certain volume, we no sooner see it than we are in urgent need of it. So often is it with some of you about other matters, so that it becomes most dangerous to let you see, because you want as soon as you see. A sight of Jesus, of what he is to sinners, of what he makes sinners, of what he is in himself will more tend to make you feel your need of him than all your pouring over your poor miserable self. You will get no further there. Look to Jesus only. I saith another, but I want to read my title clear. I want to know that I have an interest in Jesus. You will best read your interest in Christ by looking at him, Spurgeon says. If I want to know whether a certain estate is mine, do I look into my own heart to see if I have a right to it? But I look into the archives of the estate. I search testaments and covenants. Now Christ Jesus is God's covenant with the people, a leader and commander to the people. Today, I personally can read my title clear to heaven, and shall I tell you how I read it? Not because I feel all I wish to feel, nor because I am what I hope I yet shall be, but I read in the word that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I am a sinner. Even the devil cannot tell me that I am not. O precious Savior, then thou hast come to save such as I am. Then I see it written again, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. I have believed and have been baptized. I know I trust alone in Jesus, and that is believing. As surely then as there is a God in heaven, I shall be in heaven one day. It must be so, because unless God be a liar, he that believeth must be saved. You see, it is not by looking within, Spurgeon writes. It is by looking to Jesus only that you perceive at last your name graven on his hands. I wish to have Christ's name written on my heart, But if I want assurance, I have to look at his heart till I see my name written there. 
Oh, turn your eye away from your sin and your emptiness to his righteousness and his fullness. See the sweat drops bloody as they fall in Gethsemane. See his heart pierced and pouring out blood and water for the sins of men on Calvary. There is life in a look at him. Oh, look to him, and though it be Jesus only, though Moses should condemn you and Elijah should alarm you, yet Jesus only shall be enough to comfort and enough to save you. May God grant us grace, every one of us, to take for our motto in life, for our hope in death, and for our joy in eternity, Jesus only. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, that is it, isn't it? That's it. Spurgeon, as reminds you and reminds me that everything is found when we see Jesus only. We need not look everywhere else, and sometimes in the world we are tempted we go through problems in our lives, in our marriages, or at home. We, we see struggles in our country, and we're tempted to draw our eyes all over the place. But we need to look and see Jesus only, because only Jesus will comfort us. Only Jesus. You know, if we feel like, you know what, I'm just not transformed enough. I don't, I don't love God as much as I should. I don't serve him as much as I should. I feel so cold to him. I don't want to read my Bible. I sometimes, to be honest, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to see church people. I just want to stay at home or do this or that. And I don't love God. I feel so cold. Well, what's the solution? Is the solution to sit around and feel bad about yourself all the time? There's no hope in there. The solution, as Spurgeon reminds us, and as the transfiguration is highlighting to these disciples and to you and me, it's about Jesus only. Only look to Jesus, looking at Jesus only. And we do it also if we, if we, uh, you know, if we, we struggle with our assurance of faith. I love what Spurgeon says there, right? I struggle. Do I really know? It does. Do I really believe? Am I really saved? And Spurgeon says that, right? If I want to know that, if I want to have Christ's heart written on my, Christ's name written on my heart, the solution is not to sit there and look at my heart and try to write it myself, but rather to see my name on his heart, to look to Jesus only. Um, yeah, that is, that is good stuff. And I hope that if, if we get nothing else out of this podcast, um, that that kind of preaching from Spurgeon, from those old guys, right? Those guys knew how to, it's not because, um, right, they were, Spurgeon was a great preacher, great, uh, very intelligent man, but it's because they could see in the scriptures the truth that so much of the time I think our modern day generation misses, even in conservative Christianity, is we take our eyes off Jesus only and all that he is for us. We have to be reminded of that over and over, looking to him alone. Okay, I'll give you one last, um, one last thing here, and that is from uh, Matthew chapter 20. I'm, I'm sorry for that longer one from Spurgeon, but it, I just thought it was so good, and I hope it's, hope it's beneficial to you. Oh, by the way, yeah, if you're wanting to check out that sermon, um, let me get my papers here. 
yeah, I think it's a, yeah, there's a whole sermon. If you type in Matthew 17, 8, or if you type in Jesus only Spurgeon sermon, I'm sure somewhere you can find that whole text of the sermon. It's very good, very good. Um, lastly, though, from Matthew chapter 20, the last chapter that we're going to read, right? Um, to this week, and you, we, I had something also, you know, I don't have time today to read for a minute, but about uh, Jesus with the uh, uh, chapter 18, about where Jesus instructs us how we're to deal with uh, our brothers and sisters within the church who maybe have sinned against us or who we, we have friction with and how to deal with them, right? We are to go to them, and, and to, there's a whole series in which we're just supposed to, there's principles um, that we are to apply to our life as a church, and and that's so important too. But lastly, I want to bring up about what true greatness is as Christians. And what do you think it is that makes us great? What is it that makes somebody great or a great Christian or a great man or woman? Well, J.C. Ryle has um, this from Matthew chapter 20. And you'll remember that the mother of uh, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, they come up, right, and she wants them to sit at uh, the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom, and, and um, you know, she's wanting great things for her kids, right? It's understandable. She's a, she's a good mother. But then um, we read this, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, rightfully, right? I mean, that's understandable. Uh, you guys are trying to, to get ahead of us. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." J.C. Ryle has a section here from this on the fact that the Lord Jesus is an example of true greatness for all of us. What is true greatness? He writes this, What says the scripture? We ought to serve one another, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Lord God has mercifully provided his people with everything necessary to their sanctification. He has given those who follow after holiness the clearest of precepts, the best of motives, and the most encouraging of promises. But this is not all. He has furthermore supplied them with the most perfect pattern and example, even the life of his own son. By that life he bids us model our own. In the steps of that life he bid us walk, 1 Peter 2, 21. It is the model after which we must strive to, hold our, to mold our tempers, our words, and our works in this evil world. Would my master have spoken in this manner? Would my master have behaved in this way? These are questions by which we ought daily to test ourselves. And I think, again, as we turn our eyes from that phrase about Jesus only, Jesus only is our salvation, but Jesus also only is our prime example. Now, there are, remember Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So Jesus is the perfect example, the, the exemplar he is the pioneer, the trailblazer, the founder and author of our salvation. So that not only is he the prime, is he the, the, the cause and the one who brings about our salvation, our justification, our sanctification, but he's also the one after whom we are to pattern our lives, not to be saved, but because we have been saved by him. And Jesus shows us an amazing example of humility. 
It makes you think about Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a serpent, of a serpent, of a servant. Um, he, He lowered himself, looking to our interest, looking to uh, the glory of his Father, but to the interest of us sinners. That is such a, a wonderful example of humility that is service. Jesus Christ says, I did not come to be served, even though he deserves it as God, and he's the perfect man. He did not come so that everybody else could wash his feet and everybody else could do all these things. He came to come and wash all of our feet and to make us clean, to cleanse us, to save us, to redeem us, to die as our substitute so that we could be set free from sin, to change our hearts. He came to serve us. That is a very powerful thing. I mean, every Sunday we get together for sacred worship. When we get together and the Bible is read, we're together as God's people. We are singing his praise. We are praying according to his will. We are hearing his word read to us. We are hearing preaching from his word. We need to, it's a good helpful reminder for us that even then our king is lovingly serving us. Now we don't deserve that. But remember what Jesus told Peter? If I don't wash your feet, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Because remember, Peter says, Lord, you will not, you won't wash my feet. And Jesus says, Listen, Peter, if I don't serve you, if I don't come and 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 wash your feet, and this is all of a parable, but it's meant to illustrate Jesus' whole point in coming, you don't have any part in me. And similarly, if Jesus does not come and give his life for us, there's no way that we can have life with him. And, and so, whenever we get together for worship, Jesus is serving us. What an, what an amazing example of humility. Whenever we are at home and we're reading the scriptures and we're reading our Bible or we're praying, Jesus, we are worshiping him, but also there's a real sense in which he is still serving us. He's interceding for us. He is teaching us through the Bible. He is here on the pages of Scripture, but he's a real man in heaven. And through the pages of Scripture and through the person of the Spirit, he is still teaching us because he loves us. He is more interested and dedicated in our salvation than we are. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord, a wonderful Savior to me. And, and so as we, as we think about these things, as we think about Jesus and how uh, an amazing example of true greatness, and is there anything, anyone greater than Jesus, right? Well, no, that's what true greatness also then should look like in our lives. We should be marked by humility, thinking less of ourselves, thinking and looking to the interest of God and of others before our own. We ought to be more like our Savior and um, ask ourselves that question, as Ryle says, would my master have behaved in this way? How would my master have uh, behaved in these moments? And, and perhaps, again, that's another reason to dig even deeper into this, the pages of the Gospels especially. How did our Savior behave? And what does that mean for how we should live our lives um, with our wives or our husbands or our children or... Um, 
you know, our church members, our guys at work? How did Jesus handle these things? Uh, because that's what true greatness looks like in ordinary life. And, and what can we learn? What can we glean from this? Let's look to Jesus only as we see these things and try to ask ourselves, what can we grasp and what can we learn? And, and ask the Holy Spirit, of course, on top of that even more to change us. Because without him, without Jesus changing us through the person of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit, we can do nothing. So a good reminder uh, to uh, all of us. Well, I hope this has been uh, helpful to you. I've enjoyed it. Um, and I hope you're still reading the scriptures. I hope you're benefiting from them. I hope that if you're uh, if you're having questions or uh, you have you know ideas or anything like that that you'll talk to me, um, and I want to help you because I want us all to be able to read the Bible, to grow in Jesus Christ, to grow in the knowledge of salvation, and and uh, to to live a better life as the people of God here in Monroe. That's what we want to do. That's what this is all about, is helping us be better followers of Jesus Christ. So I really appreciate you guys, uh, you guys, uh, your participation in this. And uh, yeah, well, I hope to see you next week as we continue reading Matthew chapters 21 through 25, the triumphal entry, and, and as we progress towards the cross of Christ. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for being with us uh, today, and take care. And God bless.